Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. The decision to withdraw from Afghanistan has the left, the right, center, all criticizing President Biden. He took to the microphone yesterday uh, for the fourth time uh, in uh, about a week's time to address the situation going on in Afghanistan. So the question that I think we have to do and that we have to get to beyond beyond every, all the headlines that we're seeing, beyond the talking points of left, right, and center organizations is – are we once again falling into the trap of the false choice? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Really pleased to be joined uh, by our friend, uh, editor and CEO of The Dispatch, Steve Hayes, joins us on the line from Washington, D.C. today. Steve, it's been a pretty heavy a pretty heavy 48 hours uh, for so many. I know you've been in the middle of the middle of so much of this. And at the Dispatch, uh, thedispatch.com, uh, which is just such a great resource for all of us to get a good, reasonable, rational perspective on things. Uh, you did something this morning uh, that you've only done one other time in your history, uh, and that is you uh, did a a staff editorial. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, when we launched the dispatch almost two years ago now, we decided that we weren't going to do, you know, at the Weekly Standard, we did a, a daily editorial when I was the editor there. And, uh, you know, I think they were great. It was it was a, a good contribution to the debate. But we decided that we were going to be a bit more selective and, and really try to only weigh in at, at particularly big moments mm-hmm. uh, at the dispatch. And so we wrote our first editorial, first ever editorial, uh, in-house editorial on January 7th uh, about the events that took place the day before. And uh, our second one we published this morning about uh, the catastrophe in Afghanistan and why we're here and, and what it all means. And, um, you know, offered, offered something of a pathway <laughs> forward, but not not necessarily convinced that uh, that many people in the Biden administration are going to are going to listen. Yeah, well, one of the things that uh, resonated with me—it's something we talk about on this show often—is is the kind of the fake fight, false choice syndrome that seems to be gripping really the far right and the far left of the political parties. But it's it's one that 
for whatever reason, uh, President Biden has fully embraced as it relates to Afghanistan. Uh, and it just seemed yesterday to be a series of false choices. Uh, and you uh, you address some of those in your piece today. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the biggest one, the one that stands out most to us as we've wrestled with this and, and you know, participated in these debates, we've been reporting uh, on Afghanistan regularly in the morning dispatch and, and in particular with uh, Tom Jocelyn, who writes our national security and foreign policy newsletter called Vital Interest. Tom, is, Tom can tell you more about Afghanistan than virtually anybody in, in the country right now. And so he, we've been following this for a long time. And one of the things that's been frustrating false choice, really, as the debate has, has unfolded, is this idea that it's either, you know, an extended long-term forever war and occupation, or it's a full pullout uh, with nobody there and, and sort of throwing up our hands. And you know, we think there is a, a responsible middle path there, probably a path that, that leads closer to to, to getting, uh, re, you know, reducing our presence or keeping our presence uh, at, at what it had been in these last few months, which was 2,500 American troops supplemented by 8,000 uh, coalition partners, probably boosting that a bit to make sure that the Taliban didn't take over the country. Um, and I think that would have been a responsible way to go. You're not making a long-term commitment um, to having you know, tens of thousands of, of U.S. troops there. But you are ensuring, I think, with that commitment, that level of commitment, that Al-Qaeda is not going to get a uh, going to have a, a safe haven in Afghanistan. And uh, the Taliban won't be ruling Afghanistan in the brutal way that we saw them do it 20 plus years ago. So I think that's, you know, there, there is a there is a, a another path. There is a sort of a compromise position. And it's frustrating to me that we never really saw much of a debate or discussion about it. Yeah. Yeah. It just uh, seems to me that, you know, we just kind of keep doing these all or nothing choices and the all or nothing choices. You, you always end up uh, either justifying a really bad move or a really bad deal uh, in in the process. Uh, we know yesterday uh, that uh, there are 13 new, uh, not just Gold Star spouses or Gold Star families, but Gold Star communities. Uh, we lost Little League yeah. baseball coaches and people who work at the YMCA and who, who walk their dogs uh, and take care of their neighbors, uh, snow in the winter. Uh, it's really a Gold Star community. And again, it seems like these false choices of, well, we either have to uh, do everything or nothing uh, just gets in the way. You pointed out uh, in in the piece uh, with your staff there at the dispatch, uh, just talking about the, this idea of, well, you know, now we, now we have to have the Taliban. Uh, and, and while we can say, well, there, there were some, there are challenges now, uh, but uh, having the president sell the Taliban as a good option uh, just didn't quite ring true. I think to very many people. That's been a, a frustration really going back three administrations. You know, if you go back and you think about, what Barack Obama did um, at the beginning of of this process, he made clear in a speech at West Point in 2009 that he wanted to get out and said we needed to draw down. Um, Barack Obama thought the Afghanistan war was the good war and uh, the Iraq war was the bad war, but made clear he wanted to go, announced the troop surge, uh, and then said here's our withdrawal date. 
fair enough. There's a good argument. There's smart, reasonable, rational people on on uh, in both political parties who say it's time to go. But the problem is what we've done in, in the interim is, I think, taken steps to undermine the Afghan government that was at least putatively our, our ally in the region. And it was a problematic government for a, a number of reasons. There was high level of corruption. Um, and, and, you know, there, there were problems, to be sure. But what it didn't require was to have our political leaders whitewash the Taliban or pretend that the Taliban was something that the Taliban is not and never will be. And you saw this in the Obama administration's negotiations with the Taliban when they made the Taliban out to be potential partners in peace. You saw it, I think, accelerate and accelerate in a really dramatic and unfortunate way under the Trump administration in service of the deal uh, that they struck in February of 2020 when you had uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo literally making the case on, on Face the Nation on CBS News that the Taliban would take up arms against al-Qaeda uh, and work alongside U.S. soldiers as our counterterrorism partners. Donald Trump said he thought that the Taliban would be out there killing al-Qaeda. Um, and you've seen this same mentality set in with the Biden administration. It's very important to point out that Taliban and al-Qaeda are intermingled in such a way that makes it impossible to separate the two. The Taliban were never going to take up arms against al-Qaeda. We couldn't get the Taliban as a precondition of these peace negotiations even to renounce al-Qaeda ever. The, the Obama administration tried it. The Trump administration tried it. They wouldn't even renounce al-Qaeda. They share leadership with al-Qaeda. The, the leaders of the Taliban, we have $10 million bounties on the head of some of the top leaders of the Taliban. They are not going to be our counterterrorism partner in Afghanistan. And it's awfully frustrating to listen to a debate take place in which that's sort of a main supposition. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine succeeding when you so misread who you're fighting and what you're doing. We often debate the, you know, enemy of our enemy is our friend. Uh, but that really just doesn't work out in the end, does it? No, it sure doesn't. And you're seeing this now on the ground. I mean, the, the people who conducted the attacks uh, at the airport were ISIS of Khorasan, which is uh, an ISIS offshoot located in Afghanistan, centered in Afghanistan. Um, they're very bad, very, very bad people. Um, they have a rivalry with the Taliban, who have you know effectively mm -hmm. taken control of the country. And what the Biden administration is saying, well, because the Taliban have this rivalry with ISIS-K, as they're known, we can exploit that by, you know, befriending and partnering uh, with the Taliban. It doesn't work that way. These are hardcore committed jihadists. They want to kill Americans. They are allied with al-Qaeda. Just because they have some internecine fighting amongst themselves doesn't mean that we should partner with people who commit suicide bombings to stop people who commit suicide bombings. It's never going to work. And it's a fool's errand to try. And what, what really worries me is this is the United States setting itself up for failure after we leave Afghanistan, too. And, and you know, there's been a lot of attention in the reporting in, in recent days on the unfolding crisis um, taking place at the airport, the humanitarian crisis, the inability of, of uh, the U.S. government to get out its own people, to get out Afghan allies. And that 
focus uh, has been understandable because it is it is a crisis and it's happening right now. But we've paid too little attention, in my view, to the next stage of this catastrophe, which is the coming uh, growing security threat that the United States will face as a result of these decisions. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to one more piece from your uh, from your editorial today uh, from the Dispatch. If you're just joining us, we have Steve Hayes on the line with us, uh, CEO of the Dispatch, editor of the Dispatch dot com. Uh, just a great resource. You need to get on the the daily <laughs> Dispatch list. There, uh, it is a great source for you to start your day with some real perspective and things that will make you think uh, in ways that you're not getting a lot of other places. And uh, before I dive back into into uh, your editorial there, I, I want to talk about the the broader perspective that you kind of alluded to in terms of uh, what happens next in the world in terms of security, what happens with our allies. Uh, we noted yesterday that in a very rare move that wasn't really reported last week that the British Parliament, uh, of course, had already convened to discuss uh, Afghanistan and in a an incredibly rare move. Uh, held the president of the United States in contempt uh, for the handling yeah. of Afghanistan. And so what does this do, Steve, from your perspective? You've seen this uh, in many different instances. What does this do to our state and standing uh, as leader of the free world, as someone who uh, has an important role to play in freedom uh, of the world uh, here in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the damage is virtually incalculable at this point. And you never see people like the Brits saying the kinds of things that, that they say. You know, we have this special alliance with the Brits, this special relationship. Uh, it's existed for for decades, for centuries, some would argue. And you don't see them criticizing a U.S. president that way, e- even if um, the, the political parties are not particularly well aligned, as they are in this case. You've seen this kind of cr- criticism from uh, allies throughout Europe, beyond Europe. You've seen this from regional allies. And I think there's just a tremendous sense of betrayal that the United States is in a position right now of going back on our word, of not making good on our commitments, the commitments that we gave to our our allies in Afghanistan when we asked them to help us, the commitments that we gave to our partners, our coalition partners, when we asked them potentially to sacrifice their soldiers to make these kinds of commitments. You know, the the Brits asked for permission to continue their uh, evacuation flights uh, on a NATO call, uh, I think about a week ago. And the reporting out of the call was that Joe Biden said, in effect, no, we're getting out. August 31st, and we're not helping anybody else. It's just not the way your allies. And for a guy who ran for president saying that he was going to bring America back and he was going to restore damaged relationships and put a premium on the kind of diplomacy that you know he's talked about over the course of his long career, for him to do this is just really mind-boggling. Yeah. Final question for you, Steve. Um you talked uh, in your editorial about, again, the false choice of whether this is nation building uh, or if it's something different. And you raised a, an issue that I think is, again, underreported and vitally important. Uh, and that is what uh, what was it worth uh, the value 
of a society that suddenly did let women get education. They were did have a seat at the table in drafting the country's constitution. They have been able to go to school and run businesses and, and be a, a major force in the country. Uh, tell us about that false choice and what that means moving forward. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to those arguments. I, I, I am, in a strange way, I'm sympathetic to, to the argument that we've been there for two decades and that we've done the good that we can do and that we can't be there forever. Um, you know, we shouldn't be involved in sort of expensive billion, billion dollars, several billion dollars per year nation building efforts. Um, but at the same time, we can't just ignore the good that our presence has done. Yeah. Um, you know, the, if you look at the numbers of women who have graduated from uh, elementary school, from secondary, gotten secondary education, who've gotten college degrees, who've gone on to take leadership positions in a much more Western-friendly uh, government than than uh, certainly than than was there under the Taliban, that's not nothing. And you've seen in in recent days the Taliban. Um, putting out statements that the Taliban's uh, culture ministry put out a statement telling everybody to come back, except the women. The women weren't allowed to come back. And they basically suggested that um, they would not be able to, if, if women uh, walked the streets of Kabul um, uncovered, not wearing burqas, the Taliban men would not be able to control themselves because they have never been taught how to avoid harassing and maybe assaulting women who walk the streets uncovered. I mean, this is where it's going. This is where it's, it's going back to. And, and that's just a tragedy on a, on a human level that uh, it just, it's painful to think that the United States is, is um, the way that we've gone about this withdrawal or reducing our footprint is contributing to the horrors that are, uh, that we're almost certain to see. Yeah. And uh, just a couple of final things from your uh, editorial today at the dispatch.com uh, really talked about this as a defeat of choice and, and choices really being the ultimate freedom that we all have that the, the Afghans did uh, cast their lot with us. They did make a choice uh, and concluding uh, your, you and your team wrote, they aren't merely voting with their feet. Uh, they're voting with their lives and the lives of their children and powerful perspective, as always, Steve Hayes, uh, editor and CEO of The Dispatch, thedispatch.com. Uh, Steve, always appreciate your perspective. Thanks for jumping on with us today. Anytime. Thanks, Boyd. So, again, we have to remember to not fall into the trap of the false choice as we continue to work our way through the difficult uh, days that we have had and the difficult days yet ahead We need to make sure we reject the false choice, the all or nothing from any side of this issue as it relates to Afghanistan. Uh, As Steve Hayes from the dispatch uh, shared with us, uh, there is a middle path. There is a way where we can do things that will make a difference, that will make our country more secure, that will make Afghanistan and that region more stable, that will help us have uh, position and strength in the world and an ability to continue to influence And we're going to stay with this conversation. We need to look at the shifting role of the United States in the world, on the world stage. And we're going to listen in from a number of different countries, what their perspective is on where America is today. And we'll do all that coming up next. Think again with Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio.
I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.